in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. I thought I'd get that one out of the way because it was always going to come up in this conversation. But by the end of this conversation, you might have a different opinion. Um, no, my hearty, my welcome to Tax is Love. Now, we're going to have time for your questions. I've been coming here for some years now, and always you come up with questions that after 40 years as a journalist, I wish I'd thought of. So, so I promise to leave you time at the end of this because I think we're going to have some good ones coming from the conversation. Our guest speakers are Shamabil Yaakov, who's a consultant at Sense Partners. His focus is on analytical frameworks to aid economic forecasting. It's sexier than that, action. He'll explain it. And offering commentary and incisive research into topical areas of economics. His special skill... Um, his superpower, I would say, is coming up with terms like zombie towns, generation rent, and of course, our topic for today, tax is love. Lisa Marriott is Professor of Taxation at the University of Victoria, Wellington. Her research interests include social justice and inequality. We're going to be talking a lot about inequality and the behavioural aspects of taxation. And this book, terrific book, Sugar, Rum and Tobacco, Taxes and Public Health in New Zealand. We will be discussing these indeed. And welcoming back to the stage, Max Rashbrook, journalist, author, academic, communicator, commentator. His writing includes his book, Inequality in New Zealand Crisis, Help Us to Understand and Question Income and Wealth Inequality. I'm Lynn Freeman from RNZ National. I've been a taxpayer. I worked it out now for 40 years, so I'm feeling very loved. <laughs> very loved indeed. <laughs> um, Sharma Beale, I think the obvious place to start. For those uh, unconvinced among us, what's the premise behind taxes, love? Well, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you watched it when I said it on TV. I was doing an interview with uh, John Campbell, and he always makes it feel a little bit lovey-dovey, right? <laughs> but we were talking about tax, I think, before the last, not the last election, but the election before, and we were talking about sh what should we do on taxes. And the reason I said taxes, love, is because for the things that we want for a society, we need to have a government that is properly funded to be able to deliver those things. Um, I wrote some notes, um, only because I think this is kind of the premise for where we start. Um, so my, my son is six, and one of the songs he sings is uh, the Magic Penny song. Do you guys know that? Love is something, if you give it away, you end up having more. And I think the role of society is in providing the public goods that we all, all value, the roads, the education, all those other bits and pieces, um, and also in terms of correcting market failures. So you know, competition policy, standards, free trade agreements, all those other things, you know? So you've got to have penalties and incentives to make sure people do the right thing. It's also about actually creating a stable society where we're able to do things. It's about creating markets and creating that fabric for people to be able to interact with each other well. And, you know, if you look through history, um, the way that countries have grown, the way that we have um, really created prosperity, government has been really involved in creating the structures for that, whether it's the basic science and the research that goes behind it, or protecting some uh, infancy uh, industries in infancy to be able to make them grow. So, you know, we look to the uh, English industrialization and the cloth making. Well, that didn't exist in isolation. It, it wasn't in vacuum. In fact, the state was very involved in creating that cloth making industry. The Portuguese wine industry, which we use in economics textbooks of how it works, heavily protected by state, and it became their um, I guess, way of becoming very rich and very wealthy because it, the state provided the market and created the market. So for me, um, when we want the state to do the things that we value, the things that are for the collective, that's where the love comes from, it, because it is for the collective, it's for each other, for each other, by each other, right? But we do it through the, the mechanism of the state. The state needs one very simple thing to, to do that, and that's revenue, and that's tax. 
So if we want the uh, activities that we want, we actually need a bureaucracy to be able to do that, even though we might, I think, rail against the inefficiency of bureaucracy sometimes. We all deal with councils and government, and it can be painful. But at the same time, there is no better alternative that would provide those things. And if we want to have a society that's fair, that is, you know, got all the good things that we want, all the good things that we value, and that expression of our love for each other, which I think absolutely exists, I think through COVID we saw this, that we care about each other, we're willing to do very extreme things for the good of society. But to be able to do that effectively, I think the biggest lesson of the last 12 months is we can't just say we care about each other, we have to back it up with dollars and cents, and those dollars and cents come from the tax you and I pay. A round of applause arguing in favour of tax. I reveal <laughs> congratulations. That's discussion over. Thanks. No. Um, I mean, Liz, what do you, you take from that? We see it as, I mean, maybe the perception is a necessary evil, but still there, is, there can be resentment about taxation. We work hard for our money and a chunk of it is taken away and sometimes we feel like we don't have much of a say in terms of how it's spent. I mean, what's your perspective on taxation? Is it, is it love? Is it affection? Is it, you know, what is it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great term, isn't it? Tax is love. And when I first heard it, it, it sort of struck me as a as a more contemporary version of what Oliver Wendell Holmes said 100 years ago, which is taxes are the price we pay for a civilised society. And, you know, 100 years ago, it probably was all you could expect from your taxes, you know, some sort of structure and organisation. And our tax system, I think, is a real reflection of what we value in society. It's, you know, we invest in what we think is, is important. So is, is that the most vulnerable amongst us? You know, do we care about our health system, our education system? Do we care about the environment? And the way our tax system is structured allows us to signal that to everybody as to, to what's important. So, yeah, so I see tax as love as being a more contemporary expression of, of you know, what we want our tax system to be and to do. Yeah, but it doesn't mean we should shut down any conversation about what those taxes are used for. I mean, I think we should have a very robust conversation about whether or not the way that politics uses those tax dollars are the right things for society. Um, so those things are interconnected, whether it's the right level of tax, whether the right people are paying tax. Those are all proper conversations. But I don't think we should start from a premise that tax in and of itself is a bad thing. It's more about how we raise those taxes and how we spend it. Therein lies, I think, where the focus of the conversation really needs to go in public debates. Yeah, and if you, and if you think about, I mean, one of the most striking aspects of that, I think, is something like the welfare state. Um, you know, you think about the history of sort of Western civilizations generally. I mean, there's often been forms of solidarity, you know, community support, but at quite a small level. The thing I think is extraordinary about the welfare state, you know, payments to people funded out of our taxes, is that, you know, someone who's paying tax in Bluff, you know, can be funding the welfare payments of someone in Kaitaia, someone whom they will never meet, you know, in, in all likelihood in a country of five million. And yet they, you know, that support, that link is established between those people. And that is, that is love and action, or at the very least compassion or some kind of solidarity on a really extraordinary scale. It's that unconditionality of it, right? You're not expecting something in return specifically for you in that instance. But if you need it, you want those things to be there. So I think it's the lack of connection and lack of kind of clear line of, I guess, almost accountability with your tax dollars. Mm. That's where that love idea, I think, comes in better as a metaphor. Because I think quite often we go, I paid this fee for this thing. In return, give me the license for my car. But it's not like that with our general taxes. 
you know, if, if, if you've done well in New Zealand, um, you know, then you've undoubtedly almost always sort of worked hard and so on and so forth, but you've also used all these things that tax funds. You know, you've driven on public roads and probably gone to a state school and used the public health care system. So you've, you know, you've drawn out from that pool of sort of collective resources that tax funds, and that's why it's really appropriate that, you know, people on high incomes and high wealth put a lot back in to that common pool because otherwise they're not in a right kind of reciprocal relationship with that wider ecosystem that is funded through taxes. But the perception is, of course, the thorn in the side of that argument is that people who have wealth are very good at being able to disguise that wealth and protect themselves. I mean, on the biggest issue we've got, you know, the global Facebook and companies like that, but individuals. That's certainly the perception of people who pay their tax every year the entire amount that they are supposed to pay, and yet the perception is that the wealthy are disguising it. Donald, T uh, Donald Trump is an extreme <laughs> example. But, you know, I mean, is, is there truth? I mean, show me, Bill, is there, is there truth in that? I mean, whatever system we have, are there loopholes and get-arounds that, that people with money and resources can exploit? And is that a problem for us? I, I might answer that in two parts. I think there's a fundamental problem with a tax system in that it doesn't really tax wealth. So there is, a, there is a structural problem in that we don't actually tax every form of income. We only really tax income from work. Um, also, we know that um, there is a whole industry that innovates around any rules and regulations that you have, right? And there is a very large tax avoidance or tax minimization kind of industry that's out there. And some of you might have been accountants and tax accountants in the past. And that's fine because rules are there for people to go, how do we minimize it? Because there is real value in it and real incentive in it for, for people to do that. But we also know that that's generally the domain of people who have the resources and means to be able to pay these experts to do these things. So, yes, absolutely, there are lots of loopholes. But, again, it goes back to my earlier comment. You know, it's not that tax in and of itself is bad. It's that is the design good? Is the implementation right? Are we making sure that the system is always innovating? In economics, we have a term called the paradox of tranquility. So we don't want policies to be tranquil. We don't want them to be stable. Because once you create a rule or regulation, smart people will try and innovate around it. And regulation has to try and keep up. So regulation is always behind, but it always has to move to try and catch up. And tax is exactly the same. There will always be people who will try to go around it. But the point is, we should make sure that it's rested at the right level, and we're always updating and improving our tax system to be able to make sure that we're getting the right amount of revenue from the right people for what we want to achieve. Well, how would you assess, Lisa, the current tax system? Is it Here's the big one for you. Is it essentially fair and equitable? No. Actually, it follows on very much from what um, the, the question that you placed to Shamabel there, which is about, about wealth. It's more the fact that we don't actually set out to tax wealth in the first place. So usually tax systems tax on the basis of three things. You've got income, which we do pretty well. You've got consumption, which we do really well in New Zealand. That's through GST. And then you've got wealth. And what New Zealand does for taxing wealth is in really different from what everywhere else in the world does. So what we do is we say we've got a tax system and we're going to have a small number of things that we will include by way of wealth taxes. What other countries do is they say uh, we're going to 
to tax gains on capital, full stop, and then we'll carve out, we'll t make exceptions for the things that we don't want in that pool. So what that means in New Zealand is that we only end up taxing wealth on a really small number of transactions. And it's problematic because it leads to a whole bunch of distortions of behaviour because wealth is not taxed, so we've got these you know, the obvious one, the overinvestment in, in housing, uh, because it is tax preferred. And actually those, the absence of wealth taxes is just a significant tax concession for, for the wealthy. So we brought this on ourselves yeah. to a degree. Yeah. It's by design. It's by yeah. design. I mean, Max, you've, you've um, written eloquently on arguments for a wealth tax. And I think before we launch into capital gains tax, which is going to take a little bit of time, but is important. Um, let, can you describe for us the, the wealth tax that you could envisage that could work? Yeah, so a wealth tax is not something that we've had recently in New Zealand, um, but we've had sort of various variants of it in the past. And it's been quite standard in the recent past in Europe, and there's still a number of European countries which have wealth taxes. And they're, they're very simple to describe. Basically, you whatever assets you have once you've subtracted your debts um, over a certain threshold, and it's normally quite a high threshold because wealth taxes are generally aimed at the wealthiest rather than the average person. So if you've got over, say, a million dollars or two million dollars clear of debts, then you pay an annual levy that is worth a small proportion of that wealth, say one or two percent. Um, and what that does is that just really directly addresses that issue that Lisa was talking about, um, that you know, we don't tax wealth, um, and also that we have quite an unequal tax system. I mean, there's, there are different ways of getting assets. Um, you know, I mean, we talk about the inequality of things. Um, you know, just a couple of bits, a couple of facts from some research that IRD and people like that have done um, there was a stuff story a month or two ago showing that when you look at the very wealthiest New Zealanders, a lot of them are paying a lower rate of income tax than people on the minimum wage. You know, a good, I think 40% of New Zealand's wealthiest people are probably paying about 10% of their income in tax. Uh, when, you know, in theory, at least even the lowest tax rate in New Zealand is 10.5%. And salary earners like me are paying that on every cent of income. Uh, another way to sort of to, to, to think about that fact is also that if you look at those wealthiest people, again, about 40% of their accumulated wealth has never had any income tax paid on it. Um, and that's partly because they generate a lot of that income as capital gains. Um, but the IRD also thinks, and this comes onto the loopholes side of things, that very wealthy people in New Zealand are undervaluing the services that, that they provide to their own companies so that they take less as salary, which is taxed, and more as capital gains, which isn't taxed. Um, they create a lot of losses um, in past years, which, when brought forward, can be reduced, used to reduce your future tax bill. Uh, they also do a lot of using the interest charges on their borrowing to reduce their future tax bill. And of course, the government's just stopping people doing that on residential property investment. Uh, and finally, New Zealand's very wealthiest uh, have control a large number of charities, which, uh, to quote the IRD report, then make few or no charitable disbursements. Uh, so uh, charities in name only. 
So there's a lot of loopholes and there's a very limited amount of tax being paid by New Zealand's wealthier citizens. Well, given all of that, and there's a flipping big loopholes, all we really seem to hear in, in the last years is plugging the loophole. You know, they'll take on one by one and they'll stick a finger in the dike and then there's another hole. Shamabel, is this the time, I mean, do we, do we need a, a radical restructure of our tax system, do you think? Is it broken? Um, look, it's not broken because we have a state that actually functions very well. So I don't think we should be despairing at the failure of the New Zealand state. It is actually in pretty good shape. We can have arguments in terms of how good a shape that is, but I think we're very lucky to have a state that is pretty good and pretty effective. Um, I think the there is a wider conversation to be had about tax, but I don't think we're ready to make radical change. And let me explain why. I don't think across the political spectrum there is a consensus on the fact that tax system in New Zealand needs to change. And that means that if we make radical changes now, they will simply be undone when there is a change of government. If changes are not enduring, we cannot have the services and all the things that go with it on the other side of what we want to use those taxes for. So I feel like New Zealand is not ready. We need to have those conversations now about why we need to have a tax system that is broader, fairer, and hopefully with a larger tax take because we want to fund these other things. But we've got to find that consensus across the political spectrum in New Zealand. Otherwise, and we're going to disagree on this, otherwise I fear that there will be a flip, like we saw with the National Party in the last term when they came in and they dropped the top tax rate because they were like, we just don't want rich people paying high income taxes. Um, it, there was no good reason for it. It wasn't like people weren't suddenly becoming CEOs because they didn't want to pay the high marginal tax rate, right? I mean, nobody deals, nobody behaves like that. Um, and I guess one kind of slightly flippant comment. Uh, to me, it's really bizarre that New Zealand has a less progressive income tax regime than Australia. Yeah. Yeah, it's bizarre, right? I mean, we always think that we are quite progressive, but Australia literally has a more progressive income tax regime than New Zealand does. So there's lots of work to be done. But I think we've got to find consensus first before we move on to that, long, uh, that radical change. Otherwise, it will be undone. And Lisa, consensus, we, we can tell from experience, is going to be very hard to find between the, the main political parties, isn't it? Oh, look, absolutely. It, you might have a government who might be prepared to implement some more radical policy, but actually there's no point doing that to the extent that you know that with the next change of government that it's just going to become undone. But I will actually, I just want to segue into something that, that Max just said, uh, because, you know, you, Max, you were talking about the issues that Inland Revenue highlighted, and I find myself, when you are listing off your long list of issues that Inland Revenue have identified, and I just think, so what... What are they doing about that? They know all these problems exist. And one of the problems with Inland Revenue is that their funding has been cut year on year on year. And what we don't see is a lot of monitoring and enforcement and, and actual action taken in response to some of the, you know, in some cases, pretty egregious behaviour that goes on. And there was a case in the media, look, just two or three weeks ago, $17 million of GST fraud that was described as a, you know, a very simple scheme. It was, you know, any of us in this room could have done it. And yet Inland Revenue didn't pick it up and it was only because some whistleblower actually brought it to the attention of the authorities. And I just find myself thinking, you know, really, $17 million worth of fraud, which actually involves, you know, multiple times that of actual numbers going through the system. Why is our tax authority not able to identify one of the largest frauds that's come across their desk in, in recent years? And, and to me, that's part of the, the underlying issue that sits here, is that there actually doesn't seem to be much willingness to, to really um, pursue a lot of what we all know is actually going on. Yeah, even though 
even though that's one of the you know government investments that is you know generates you a massive return like for every one dollar you spend on you know the salaries of tax inspectors you get back what six dollars fifty or something it's extraordinary like that you know so it's, it's, it's an investment that just makes total sense and it's really strange that we don't make it um just coming back on sort of the points about sort of radical change and things. I mean, I, I think that can be true in some, you know, in some senses. You bring something in, and then the next government just unwinds it. But then sometimes change also creates its own reality. Um, so I mean, I, I was living in England in the 2000s when, somewhat later than New Zealand, they brought in their smoke-free legislation. So you couldn't smoke in pubs anymore, and that felt like. It was really controversial. It felt like quite a knife-edge issue during the debate. The Labour government pressed it and said, no, we're going to do it. They did it. And I would say within about two weeks, no one could imagine going back to smoking in pubs because suddenly you could you know, go out for a drink and come back without your hair and clothing <laughs> smelling of cigarette smoke and sort of the air was fresher and it was all really nice. And, you know, so it completely changed reality. And I think... You know, if the government had actually had the courage of front-footed a capital gains tax, go on to that thing, um, from the outset had been actually able to win a decent chunk of the argument, if they then brought it in, I think it would be then much harder to unwind than, say, a higher top tax rate, which we just adjust all the time. You would have to have a government that would come in and say, yeah, no, we actually want to ensure that property investors and people like that don't pay tax in the same way that you do. I think it would actually be quite hard to unwind. And we've seen that, right, with, for example, the Bright Line test, um, you know, a capital, capital, gains, gains, a capital yeah. gains tax in a different name because they're politicians and lie all the time. Um, but essentially, Unlike economists who have, a, who have an unblemished it's, it's reputation. Quite, it's, it's kind of a job description, so, you know, it goes without saying. Yeah. So, no, look, I think... You know, when you look at the way that you're absolutely right, working for families and the Brightline test were both taxes that were brought in, well, welfare systems and taxes that were brought in that stuck despite the change in governments. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right, there's something stuck, stick, but I think those big radical shifts, I don't think working for families was radical. In terms of dollars, it was actually relatively small, mm-hmm. which grew over time. Um, the the Brightline test wasn't very radical when it came because it was very time limited. It's becoming more and more radical over time as it gets longer and longer, right? Because that's the only lever the, the but, government has. But, at the but to me, it feels like um, yes, you can do some of these things, but you've got to almost kind of sneak it in mm. and then make it bad or make it bigger and or make it more effective. And don't call it a tax. But they don't call it a tax, right? Because the other thing we have is the emissions trading scheme, which is not technically a tax but operates essentially the same way that a carbon tax would. But it's not a tax, yeah. you know, supposedly. But one of the other things I just wanted to uh, um, sort of go back to was the enforcement issue. And we've seen this in the past. When the Brightline capital gains tax, or, you know, the Brightline test was brought in, it did not come with a bit of funding to actually enforce it. It was by design and very deliberate. So we can create rules and regulations, but if you don't actually, you know, fund and resource the implementation and monitoring and all of that kind of stuff, then of course it's not going to be very effective. So we know that not many people have actually played the uh, Brightline test, even though lots of people have transacted within those Brightline rules. So there are some real problems here in terms of not just people you know, using loopholes. There is also some really big problems around you know, the, the level of funding that we provide to our uh, internal revenue service to be able to deliver its discharges duties. Capital gains tax has been so unpalatable 
for governments? I mean, they've sort of supported it, then shied away. They've done they've done the polls. I mean, why why is it so difficult for any government to put a stake in the sand and said? We're going to do it, yeah. If it's the if it's the right thing to do, I do think information is a problem here. And if people understood how a capital gains tax would work and who would pay a capital gains tax, then we'd see a lot less opposition to it. Because the reality is, you know. Your individual home is never going to be the subject of a capital gains tax under any moderate government. Um, Who would end up paying it is actually the people who we we probably want to be taxing more, which is those who have more by way of of resources or wealth. Um, Not the mum and dad investors, because we hear that phrase a lot, don't we, that they will be at risk under this? Well, actually, mum and dad investors with rental properties probably would be paying capital gains tax. But here's the other thing. I think people sometimes don't quite understand that the tax is just on the gain. So if you have made a $100,000 gain on that property, you're, you're paying tax on the gain, but it is only the the additional component. So it's not that you lose that gain, you pay tax on that proportion of the gain in the same way that you would if you were earning your money through earning a wage or a, or a salary. So I, I do feel we're not very good at communicating what a capital gains tax would actually look like. And you know, for most capital gains tax systems, your other types of property are excluded. So you're not going to pay it on your, I don't know, your boat or your caravan or the other types of things that you, you might own. And there are ways that you can sort of moderate it so it doesn't have too much impact on people as well. You can have a an annual sort of threshold of capital gains that you can make where you don't pay tax. So if you're only making, you know, I don't know, 10 or 20,000 a year by way of capital gains, that can be excluded and you can roll forward on a year-by-year basis. So there are very straightforward things that you can do to make sure that it, it isn't unfair. And of course, fairness is, is what we really are, are aiming for. Well, that sounds very straightforward, Shamabil. So that, that same question, why have, have our governments shied away and to the point where this government, which perhaps would be the closest in a position to bring something like that in, given the majority that they have... The Prime Minister has stated, not on my watch. Um, I think it's um, purely politics. I think the most dominant voices in politics is still the baby boomer generation, who are also the biggest holders of capital assets in New Zealand. Um, so there is a fear of upsetting them. That's, I, th- I really think that's what it is. So when they do the focus groups, that's what they hear. Well, I'm not going to vote for you if you're going to do this, because I have an alternative who won't do that to me. Mm. But what is it costing us, Max, do you think? Well, it, it, it's costing us all the, the things that we could be funding, you know, if we had a better tax take. But it's two things, right? So a, ca- a capital gains tax doesn't mean we keep our income taxes and other taxes the same. So if we raised in money from capital gains, it's possible that we would reduce our taxes on GST and on incomes. We may not just have an increase in the welfare state and other spending. So, you know, we can, it can be tax neutral. It can be revenue neutral or it can raise more revenue. So there are ways to rebalance it. And I would argue that in New Zealand we pay far more, too much tax on work and on consumption because we don't have the capital gains or wealth tax component. So because there is no return on capital, all the tax must be burdened by people who are working and by people who are spending, which we all do. Um, so I think um, there, there are two parts to it. You're absolutely right. I think more services is absolutely one answer. The other is, of course, many people, your children and grandchildren, would have more money in their back pocket. I guess a, another perspective on the income tax thing, though, is that 
actually, you know, even though yeah we're too weighted towards consumption, uh, you know, GST and income taxes, actually even in other English-speaking countries, middle earners would pay more tax than they do in New Zealand, partly because most other countries have you know more like state or regional income taxes, and they have social security taxes. No, you know, you pay a bit more in tax, so you get a bit of a higher benefit when you lose your job. Unemployment insurance model. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing I think I'd say about the capital gains tax, and maybe this is slightly on the rosy side of things, but, you know, I think we could, it's too easy to sort of think it's all doom and gloom around a capital gains tax and it's just impossible to get one through. I think sometimes things are quite contingent and there's just a lot of, it's politics, but it's the events and the accidents of politics because, you know, Labour had a capital gains tax policy in 2011 and 2014 and then you had this real period of flip-flopping. Andrew Little came in and he ruled it out. So it was off the table and it wasn't policy. Then, of course, Ardern got suddenly elevated and it suddenly became policy again, but they weren't, they weren't prepared to defend it, to front-foot it. And so she got attacked on it, then she panicked on the campaign trial and said, we'll put it to a working group. And in retrospect, that's a moment when things died because they then had to just watch this working group do its thing for 18 months, not be able to defend their own position, and let all this misinformation pour into the gap. And that's really, and, you, and also in Winston was, was being very difficult around it. But there's definitely an alternative story where if Ardern had become leader in 2014, had front-footed it for three years, I think you could have won on it. And with enough people, because the polling always showed about 35, 40% of people were reasonably positive towards it. I think you could have won it, and it's partly just contingent facts and accidents that meant that it didn't happen. That's the rosy version anyway. And we point to a country where a capital gains tax is in place and working very well. I mean, I hear Australia quite a lot, but are there other, other examples that we could look to saying, don't be so afraid, it's okay? Most countries, right? Yeah, yeah, most countries. But also, you know, we, like we're talking about a capital gains tax now, but that isn't the only option for, for taxing wealth. And part of the problem in New Zealand is that we don't tax wealth by any other mechanism. So we don't have inheritance or estate-type duties. We don't have gift duties. We don't have land taxes, apart from the, the rates sort of side of things. Whereas a lot of countries actually have combinations of these things, so a capital gains tax and a gift duty or an estate duty. Um, so... That is my perspective. That's the key problem: is that we don't really attempt to tax wealth by by any mechanism. Um, does anybody do it perfectly? No, probably not, because uh, capital gains taxes do tend to be, or wealth taxes do tend to have a lot of carve outs, so a lot of concessions for various types of activities. But you know, it doesn't mean that they're, they're still not good taxes to have. Yeah, but it's that almost the paradox of tranquility, even in this case. There is no one system that will stand the test of time. You need to keep evolving it for the conditions that you face in your society because the demographics will shift, the economy will shift, and that means we have to think about things, these things, I guess, almost progressively over time. There is no one kind of, you know, perfect kind of answer. Well, what I hear in Australia from friends there is saying that they, they don't tend to invest in a lot of properties. They have their family home and they invest very heavily in the family home to make it the, the best, the warmest, the, you know. And, and I thought that's kind of, kind of interesting. It's happening now, but just because of people can't travel, so they're putting their money into their homes. Well, I think oh, there was also a whole bunch of differences. They do invest quite a lot in um, investment properties in Australia too. So their home ownership rates are just as bad as ours. 
Um, so the other thing that happens in Australia, of course, is they have a superannuation system and people also hold a lot of financial wealth, which is taxed relatively well. So there are lots of different ways that you can have taxes that work. So I think we don't need to sort of look to other countries necessarily for the perfect answer. There are lots of things we can do in New Zealand. I mean, one of my favorites, of course, is the land tax, which would be a very simple thing to do. But I think it needs to come with some concessions on the other side. You can't just go, here is an additional tax. And that does, I think that can't win the politics. You've got to show us that you are actually thinking about the equity, the impact that it will have on people. You've got to transition people in. Um, you know, with the increases in regional council rates, for example, that we're seeing around the country at the moment, farmers are going to be up in arms, right? Because, you know, they're going to say, why are we paying all this money when all the townies are making all this pollution too? Why are they not paying their fair share? It's actually a very good question. The, the taxes that we pay on regional councils is very small. It's like point something percent of local GDP, right? But the way it falls makes it very painful for certain groups, and they are very squeaky. So you've got to find some ways to make it, I think, both politically and practically much more well spread out. Because you know, we can't have, you know, the, uh, the politics is real. You've got to be able to deal with the politics. You know, tax and tax policies don't happen in isolation, right? Ultimately, they're still political decisions. We've been talking about the capital gains tax. There are others, and you've studied this, Lisa, the relationship between tax and health and the, the sugar tax proposal. Uh, and this, again, is really hotly contested. Can you tell us the argument for and maybe some of the arguments that you're hearing against a sugar tax. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So sugar taxes are becoming increasingly popular globally. There's been quite a few places now that have introduced them, the UK, South Africa, a whole bunch of others. Um, when I wrote this book, and I wrote it with somebody from the Maligan Institute, who's a, a medical professional, we came at this from fairly opposite perspectives. I, I was not a fan at all of using the tax system to try to encourage people to consume less sugar. But when I became a bit more familiar with actually all the problems, the health problems that sit alongside sugar consumption, I actually became quite quite a convert, which I guess goes back to the, the importance of having good information. So um, so we wrote, wrote the book and, and the idea with it is that, you know, you can change behaviour through the tax system. You know, we see this across any number of different types of activity. You're never going to change behaviour completely, but you certainly can get behavioural change. Is tobacco an example of that? Tobacco is a really good example of that. And in fact, the, the really good example with tobacco is what it shows is that actually to get very strong behavioural change, you need very high taxes. And that is the problem with trying to change behaviour through the tax system is that the price signal has to be sufficiently large that people will notice it and respond. And the one thing that we did quite well, assuming that you think that the tax was a good thing, was that every year for 10 years, we increased the tax because people's behaviour tends to revert after time, you know, you get used to it. But with increasing it 10% every year for 10 years, what that meant is people couldn't ever just revert to their behaviour because there was this ongoing reminder that uh, tobacco was becoming more and more expensive. Uh, so yeah, so tobacco is a great example. Um, back to sugar. Uh, so we really sort of settled on you know the idea that actually a sugar tax would be a good thing. The problems with it are it is regressive, like most of these types of taxes. They do tend to fall more heavily on lower income earners. And that is uh, actually just a problem with 
any taxes of this sort of nature. The tobacco tax is exactly the same. Uh, and the other key problem is that they have to be so large to really get the behavioural change that you want that actually no government's probably ever really going to introduce a tax. On the other side, you know, sometimes just introducing a tax is a, is a good signal uh, and sometimes that is just enough to get a little bit of behavioural change around the margins. What are your uh, thoughts on a sugar tax, Max? Um, I, I don't have a strong position either way. It's not something I've looked at in great detail, um, but I think a lot of Lisa's arguments are, are really strong. Um, a, a tax that I'm uh, particularly interested in uh, is the Irish uh, lifetime gifts tax, basically. Um, and here, we're, I'm just going to completely ignore Shamabiel's injunction that you have to care about the politics, uh, because <laughs> gifts and inheritance taxes are extremely unpopular. They're either the only thing Everywhere. that's less popular than wealth taxes, even. Um, but if you'll indulge me for a moment. Um, what the Irish basically do is they say, well, you know, over your lifetime, you should be able to receive gifts, you know, inheritances um, and gifts sort of during people's lifetime up to a certain value, you know, because it's an important thing to be able to, for people to be able to support their kids and pass on a bit of wealth and help them get on the property ladder and whatever else. And up to a certain point, you know, you don't want the tax authorities engaged with that. But at the same time, gifts and inheritances are obviously unjust because you don't get them, you haven't worked for them, you've just got them because you're related to people and that's unfair to people who don't receive inheritances. Um, and so there's a legitimate role for the tax system to play in sort of redressing that unfairness. So once you've received gifts up to a certain value during your lifetime, 100,000 euros, 200,000 euros, whatever, you start paying tax on those gifts and inheritances. And that tax revenue is then used to compensate people who through no fault of their own haven't been receiving gifts and inheritances. And I think that would be a good complement to a capital gains tax in New Zealand, and you could pitch it as basically saying, well, we just we just want to tax all income, you know, because capital gains are income. They should be taxed just like my salary is taxed. Actually, gifts and inheritances are like a very lumpy, irregular kind of income. Why shouldn't they be taxed as well above a certain threshold? And I think there'd be a real fairness argument for that. Shama Beard, if we had a, a referenda on those two forms of taxation, the sugar tax and the inheritance, which way would you vote? Um, I think I would vote for the sugar tax, and let me explain why. The tax that we had in tobacco, even though it was relatively small, it didn't happen in isolation. It came with a whole bunch of other things that supported the cessation of smoking. And in fact, our smoking rate over the last few decades has fallen quite dramatically. So it's actually been a great policy success. Now they're looking at raising the age. I think the next step now is raising the age. Exactly. It came with item. education, research, health services, um, rules and regulations, who can sell it, uh, plain packaging, warnings, not being able to sell it in certain shops. So the tax wasn't the only tool. Tax is one part of the arsenal of dealing with this public health issue. And the reason why I would favour the sugar tax over the wealth tax is because I think there is a public health crisis today that we need to focus on. And when you go to our poorer societies, high deprivation society, sugar is creating massive problems in terms of diabetes, people losing their limbs, and you know all the kind of other problems that go with it. There are huge public health, human, and social and economic costs. So for that reason only... But I agree with Lisa that it would never be big enough in the beginning to actually change behaviour. But I think it would be enough for us to say, it's not enough at this level, so we must do these other things in concert. 
And therein lies, I think, the opportunity. Public policy always works better when you're not using just one tool, but a plethora of tools all pushing in the same direction. But picking up on that, I guess, what do you do about the fact that it would also hit those communities hardest in the pocket? I mean, do you earmark the revenue from it for you know, diabetes services or local hospitals or... Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there wasn't hypothecation in that sense with the tobacco stuff, mm -hmm. but the there was increase in funding for those services around emphysema, around lung cancer, around you know smoking cessation programs, support, and those kinds of things. You're absolutely right, but we want people to actually reduce those consumptions. And if you don't pay more for it, yeah. if you're not financially worse off, you won't change behaviour. Yeah. And, and what the research has shown is as much as those taxes do impact mostly on lower-income earners, that's also where you get the biggest behavioural change. Mm. So, in fact, over time, it does sort of balance itself out because you're getting the behavioural change by the largest consumers of, of sugar in this case. So, over time, it's a, you do actually land where you want to land with it. Um, just related to that, I was thinking there's been discussion, not more recently, about GST and lowering GST on healthy food. So, you've got the carrot and the stick, haven't you, essentially? How would you feel about that? Lisa, is that, is that something that could be looked at? I mean, that, that's been shied away from because the argument is it's too complicated to, to do. But what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, uh, you, you know, one of the things with our GST system is it is seen as a model tax globally. Other countries look to our GST system, uh, you know, in awe in many cases with what we've managed to achieve. And that's because everything is subject to GST, which means that it collects a lot of revenue at a, a relatively low cost. We've never been one to sort of carve things out of the GST system for um, for uh, social impact. And from that perspective, look, you know, it would be great for healthy uh, produce to be lower cost, but I don't think the GST system is the way to achieve that. And if you look over to Australia, for example, they have a number of sort of carve-outs from their GST, and they lose a significant proportion of what their GST could potentially collect just because there is so much which is actually carved out of it. And I think if you do want to have, you know, genuinely, if you want healthy food to be lower priced, then you probably need to actually create some sort of subsidy arrangement for that. And the other problem that you have is with doing something like that is, you know, uh, the, the more you move away from having quite a simple tax system, the the not only just the loss that you have, but you actually generate this complexity, and you get into discussions like, well, you know, if somebody buys a um, a potato to put in the ground to grow potatoes, is that then is that then a, a food item, or is that then something else that should be included? And what if somebody has a slice of tomato in their hamburger that you buy, then then what happens to that? You know, you can see where I'm going with this. It creates an enormous amount of complexity because you're trying to achieve something that the that particular tax is not really designed to achieve. So the short answer is is, is no. I, can, I, I, can I ask you a question? Do Aussies eat more veggies than us? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, because they have a lower tax rate on their veggies. Do they eat more veggies than we do? Um, I don't know. <laughs> There's a, there's a research project right yeah. there. Yeah, well, I think it's a, don't you think it's a good question? Like, yeah. if, if it's effective, then we would see eating a lot more broccoli than we do here. <laughs> the, um, the, the story I always think about is because I lived in the UK for a long time, and they were having this huge, long-running and fundamentally really pointless court battle about 
uh, mellow puffs, <laughs> essentially, uh, which they called tea cakes uh, from memory. And the, the, the huge court case between the people who made them and uh, Her Majesty's Customs and Revenue about are mellow puffs cakes or biscuits? <laughs> uh, because, it, because the tax treatment was different between the two of them for some reason. And I can't remember the details, but it's basically all in the same bamba as Lisa's point about you know, not you know, having different tax treatment for fruit and vegetables. You do just get into a world of pain. And I, it dragged on for ages. And I think in the end, the manufacturers won. So it was just a colossal waste of time, basically. Mm. When it comes to tax avoidance, global companies are very good at it, and like Facebook's come up for conversation in the, in the media context as well, and with democracy. I mean, Shamabir, what do you, who can take on the global companies, and what impact is it having on them not clearly not paying their fair share of, of tax? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot, mainly because of the work that's been going on in the OECD with the global tax regime, right? So it's not like this is an issue that's happening in isolation. So people are very concerned about it and are working on it. But I think there is a, we need a regime change. So for the last 30 years, we've been in a process of competitive reduction of tax rates and trying to create tax havens and essentially attract businesses and park profit and all those other bits and pieces. Um, to me, it feels like we're probably at that opportunity where we're going to shift. So the proposal from Biden in particular that's trying to find a way through the morass of how we tax multinational companies is quite a big deal. So if that comes through, then it might break the deadlock. And I think that's what's been missing in that global kind of setting. There has been nobody willing to take leadership position of what is the right way to tax these very large companies that are willfully and very creatively avoiding paying taxes to everybody. Right? So, I mean, you know, if you look at companies like Apple, its ingenuity is probably much greater in taxes than in the phones that they make. Right? <laughs> Ultimately, if you want to solve this stuff, it is political, but it's much harder because it's global. So there's a whole bunch of coordination problems. And how do we punish those companies like the Caymans and other countries that want to be tax havens? Um, so there are some real challenges there in terms of the coordination problems. But if you don't have strong leadership from, those, you know, from, the, from Europe, from OECD, from the US, it just can't work. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do think it's a huge issue in the absolute key, I think, at the international level um, is forcing companies to pay tax where they actually operate rather than allowing them to pay tax where they feel like paying tax. And, you know, I mean, without going into all the details, you know, they're very good at channeling <laughs> their profits and claiming that they were, you know, made by the company that happens to be the bit of the company that's based in Ireland where the corporate taxes are very low or in some cases non-existent. Well, and, you know, the interesting story about um, Apple was in one year they paid 0.1% tax rate in Ireland. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because they have these amazing sweetheart deals with the Irish. But, but they, of course, they're not, and they're, not, but they're not doing that much business in Ireland. So basically what you have to have is a formula where you say to companies, well, you know, based on either like where your sales are or where your sales, your staff and your factories are, that's where you pay, you pay a proportion of your, we allocate your profits to that country and you pay that country's tax rate on those profits. So you basically prevent companies' ability to siphon off their profits to where they choose. And obviously that's best done internationally, but some countries that have got fed up with waiting for the international agreements to happen are just starting to do it unilaterally anyway. 
Lisa might have a bit around how global companies also sell their own services to their subsidiaries at inflated prices to reduce profits. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the problem is, as both Max and Shimabel have said, is, you know, you need a global solution because it is a global problem. The idea that, that Max raised, the idea of this formula apportionment, does have a lot of sort of uh, foundation to it. So, you know, the idea that you don't tax on profit, which is what we would normally tax on, well, you don't share your component based on profit, you you uh, do it on something like revenue instead. So if Google earns 2% of its revenue in New Zealand, then it pays 2% of its tax in New Zealand. And there's a certain degree of sort of simplicity and elegance alongside that because it, it's actually very hard to manipulate where you earned your, your sales. However, it's a lot easier to create expenses between different arms of your organisation. So you might have a significant management expense that conveniently comes out of, of Ireland or some other low-tax jurisdiction, which means that you can artificially lower your profits. What, what do you think, though, about countries going it alone? Because, I mean, couldn't New Zealand, for argument's sake, say, we're going to tax multinationals differently, we're going to start doing this, you have to pay tax in this way in New Zealand? Would that work? <laughs> well, given that inland revenue doesn't appear to want to even pursue our own problems <laughs> that we have, my guess would be no. Mm. I, I, in Australia, has something they call a, a diverted profits tax, mm. and you know, in theory, this looks great. You would think it would give them the um, the opportunity to tax profits that were not being taxed in Australia, and they do have the right to do that. But so far, they've only taken one case. So you know, again, they do have the ability to do it. It's they just don't seem to have a lot of willpower to want. To pursue it. Well, this is the time where I promise questions, so hands up please for questions for our panel. I've been an Australian taxpayer for quite a long time, and the capital gains tax there is not really something that you think about every day. And it's transactional, so it only happens at the completion of the life of that investment. So you flog off an investment flat the capital gains tax formula is applied to it and you pay tax along with your settlement. So you've generated the funds to pay the tax, so it's not, it doesn't deprive you of income or anything like that, so it's quite simple. Transaction taxes at gateways, like inheritance tax and all those things that people scream out loud when they're mooted, are much more effective. Why can't we introduce them? Um, you know... An estate duty might be easier, you know, levied on when people die might be easier in terms of the transaction moment than, you know, a lifetime gifts tax, levying it on the recipient. But it sounds worse to tax people for dying than it does <laughs> to tax people for getting income when other people aren't getting the same income. So it's it's not just a question of what's simplest. It's also a question about, you know, there's always the politics as well. It is much easier to raise taxes at transaction points. And I did some calculations for a Metro article um, quite some years ago. And if Auckland had a, a, a stamp duty like New South Wales has, we would have no infrastructure crisis in Auckland. So you're absolutely right. There are things that we can do to be able to pay for things we want. But the challenge that we've talked about today is not whether those taxes are the right things to do, is whether we have the political clout and courage to introduce them and stick with them. Our time is up. I'd like you to please thank me in joining our guests, Max Rashbrook, Lisa Merritt and Shamabit Ekwa.